From RTE Radio, I'm Neil O'Sheridan. This is Playback Daily. From the four proud Protestants of Ireland. That's what I'm going to be singing tomorrow night now and probably forever. So it, to me, this is the busiest time and then you can actually hibernate with the animals <laughs> <Okay>. <laughs> later on. Well, the other night I had a true event thing. Like, you know, with my daughters, I mean, on Saturday, they put me on Revolute and all these kind of things and then a coach on my phone, things I never, I never thought was possible. Coming up on this edition of Playback Daily, connecting Ashling B to the Irish rugby team, the pharmacy in a cookbook, and Irish icons of reality TV. That's all on the way over the next hour of the iconic radio catch-up show that's an icon of radio catch-up shows. On this morning's nine o'clock show, while musing on the news and other bits and bobs, you know, basically the first half of the show, Oliver Callant gave us some advice, given the day that's in it. It is Friday the 13th of October, the final Friday, uh, the 13th of the year, two weeks out from Halloween. So a lot of spooky stuff going on. You just be careful with the super You want to be not walking any under any ladders today. Make sure you wave at every single magpie. Don't break your mirrors. Uh, you can ward off evil spirits by uh, traditionally placing a photograph of Charlie Hawhey at the front door. Nod at people from Carlo. Bless yourself if you see a yellow tractor. You know, just the usual kind of Irish, completely Norman, normal pagan traditions that we observe all the time. Because this is not a good time for a hex or opening umbrellas indoors as well to try and dry them out. In inverted commas, yes, some people I know have been trying that, um, but won't be mentioned in the workplace. Uh, but anyway, it's rugby, 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 so you don't want to hex anything. Heaven forfend, but let's stick with the rugby for a minute. You're Irish, you're in Paris this weekend. You need to bluff your way through the game because there are so many rules in rugby. Nobody knows what's going on. I love how even in the commentary, the commentators go really quiet to hear the referee because they don't know why the whistle's gone and there has to be an explanation. So you hit the man with the, with the uh, elbow and so on. So nobody knows what's going on in rugby. But anyway, you need linguaphone French rugby lessons from Ronan O'Gara. Okay, so you can go around Paris this weekend and you can say look it's quarterfinals we're never going to pass the quarterfinals the opportunity here is feckin' enormous right l'opportunité est fécond énorme okay so Ronan O'Gara's um, linguaphone off he goes here l'opportunité c'est fucking énorme no 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 sorry it's l'opportunité okay it's l'opportunité Raj so just uh, just try that one more time there Raj l'opportunité c'est fucking énorme l'opportunité est fucking énorme that's Ronan O'Gara, uh, Rebel Francais, that is. You've heard of Cirque du Soleil, that's Cork du Soleil, something like that. Uh, that comes, by the way, in case you missed it, from the amazing Team Talk. It was, I think, in August, um, half French, half swearing by Ronan O'Gara to his La Rochelle charges in the run-up to their European glory. Just YouTube, Ronan O'Gara speaking French. It's probably among the best Ronan O'Gara moments of all time ever to be honest. Uh, Ireland's call, uh, it is our rugby, one of the rugby anthems. Well, it's the rugby national anthem, isn't it? As opposed to the national anthem. Uh, so Casey, who's a presenter at breakfast on, on Red FM down in Cork, says uh, his young lad, six, has been learning Ireland's call in school today. This is happening in schools. They're teaching Ireland's call to the young people to get them all um, G'd up for the weekend. Uh, so he gave Casey a rendition, the dad in the back of the car, and he nearly goes over the ditch because when he gets to the line, you know, the, the mortal line, he, the kid says, from the four proud Protestants of Ireland. <laughs> it's like that idea. It's just kind of, even at six, they're kind of thinking, yeah, there's probably only four of them in the country. 
from the four proud Protestants of Ireland. That's what I'm going to be singing tomorrow night now and probably forever. Thank you, Casey, for sharing that on the World Wide Web. Uh, this brings us to the other uh, unofficial anthem, which, of course, is um, zombie. Now, this, believe it or not, uh, it, the, the story of Ireland's embrace of zombie song at the Rugby World Cup stirs up debate over the lyrics. This is the most read thing on The Guardian's worldwide site right now. It's written by Rory Carroll, our Ireland correspondent. It's probably one of the most measured things because, you know, when they're writing it for outsiders who don't know uh, that we've apparently been discussing zombie nonstop over the last fortnight or so, um, it's fairly kind of measured, as I say. So it just points out, look, the Limerick-born singers, Dolores O'Riordan's Scorching Lament, um, has become now the, the, the a paean of a paean of sporting joy, repopularising the song. There's now a billion streams of the song on Spotify after it started taking off, and they're playing it out in the stadiums. The official people in the Rugby World Cup when Ireland wins, so we hope to hear it again. Uh, Limerick-born singer's lyric: "It's not me, it's not my family." Distance herself and other Irish people from the IRA after a bomb killed Jonathan Ball, who was three, and Tim Parry, twelve, in Warrington in 1993, which so happens to be exactly 30 years ago. Matter of fact, it is. But he's also pointing out it's unclear how many fans know about or endorse the song's message. Most are believed to sing along simply because it's catchy and has become the team's unofficial World Cup anthem. You see, sensible. And he includes the um, the quote from Colm Eastwood, who's a leader of the SDLP in the North. It says, Stop pretending opposing IRA brutality is the same as supporting British brutality. Most of us opposed both. And this is the remark because Republicans uh, are kind of calling the, the song partitionist because it opposes uh, the IRA brutality, as Colm Eastwood is calling it. And um, they're pointing out in the Guardian here. But uh, the most interesting thing is the origin of why this has become the unofficial Irish anthem for rugby in the World Cup. Um, he says, and this is, by the way, being most read across uh, uh, Guardian Media in Britain this morning. Limerick hurling fans were the first to adopt Zombie as the sporting anthem in 2018 after Dolores O'Riordan's death that year. Supporters of Munster, which is the provincial rugby team, encompasses Limerick, so it leaked onto the terraces in Thoma Park. They followed suit and then the practice spread to fans of the national team. A very kind of sensible way of putting the whole thing together. Now, what, the, what it all reminds us of, and if you're not aware of this, this is absolutely glorious. Um, do you remember This Way Up? Channel 4 shows starred Ashling B and Sharon Horgan. Um, and uh, Ashley B was a young single Irish woman living in London, uh, recovering from a bad time, bad time with the nerves. Uh, she's a teacher and, and the mammy is over anyway. And so <laughs> and Sharon Horgan is her elder sister. So there's a party in the house. The mother Eileen, played beautifully by Circa Cusack, tells the young, uh, the daughters, you know, will you sing an old song, a traditional Irish song? And they're forced to sing a song. Here's the whole clip from Channel 4. It is absolutely glorious. A song. Now, my two daughters. Oh, what? mommy, we're not. Yes, no, I don't think they so. have oh. the voices of angels. What's the matter with you? No, no, you are going to sing. No. Listen, no. you can sing no. for your supper no. for once. No. No. Go on, sing the song. Oh, no, no mommy, no. singing. The one about the ghost. Oh, it's not, not about, it's not about ghosts. ghosts, mommy. Sing it. No. no. Amazing. It's not me. It's not my family. In your head. In your head. They are fighting. In your head. Zombie. 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 They were ahead of the whole thing. I think my favourite bit in that is the fatah. 
which isn't quite at the note. But good singer, Sharon Horgan, uh, it must be said. Uh, that was This Way Up on Channel 4, uh, a show I haven't seen, but that would encourage me massively. I have seen it and can recommend. Ashing B and Sharon Horgan in the same show? It's a no-brainer, I would have thought. And that long, winding spiel from Ireland's Call to No Way Up never even mentioned Sharon Horgan's rugby connection. Someone slipped up there, surely. Maybe they should be reported to a member of Ireland's law enforcement community, which Oliver insists on saying with a vaguely Michael D-esque accent. Ungodhra Shiakana are announcing they're going to recruit older members as the age limit to join uh, is rising to 50. So as we know, um, the application, the entry age limit of 35 has been in place now nearly 20 years and it was increased from 26 at that stage, the first, uh, this is the application date. So now it's going to go up to 50 to widen the pool of prospective recruits because they're in trouble. Today, by the way, a big day for uh, the Garda recruits who are uh, having their graduation ceremony in Templemore this morning. Um, So that's where that announcement is going to be made. 126 new Garda recruits are going to graduate today. So congratulations to all of them and the best of luck to them. Don't forget, as we're maligning the fact that there aren't enough guards around the place, uh, it's a very uh, dangerous job that they do and it's not an easy job, what with the price of rent and so on, uh, because the Garda numbers are the lowest they've been in years and years. Uh, they dip below 14,000 this year for the first time in a very long time. And the recruitment targets are missed repeatedly. Uh, and this is happening, of course, in the school teachers as well. But anyway, the pertinent news today, the Garda Siakana will recruit older members um, to join. The, 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 the age limit to join is rising to 50. And they're talking about extending their career as well because you're supposed to retire at 55, aren't you, in the guards? And they're talking about increasing that one as well up to the age of 60. That's the story there from Robin Schiller in the Irish Independent. So you can learn your, your Garda speak uh, with regard to and in adherence of said provisions in the Act. I love the way they speak. It's like, you know, guard, your guards are generally kind of going, <laughs> the cinema, they're unbelievable, crack. And then you ask them a question in Garda speak. Well, with regard to that particular matter, uh, it is uh, now a feature of our ongoing inquiries, which nobody speaks. No one speaks like that in Ireland. But never change, never change, Gordy. Looking forward to the next time Oliver stopped at a random Garda checkpoint. And that's where we should maybe leave the musings on the news, which we used to hilariously call newsings from the nine o'clock show this morning. One of the measures flagged in the budget this week was a plan to tax e-cigarettes, or vapes, in next year's budget. Critics, though, have questioned why any measures weren't introduced this year. Today with Clare Byrne reporter Brian O'Connell spoke to Clare about vapes and government intervention. Uh, Minister for Finance Michael McGrath said on Tuesday considerable preparatory work will be needed by his department and by revenue on this new domestic tax which will be on e-cigarettes and as I said expected to come in late next year. The industry insists that e-cigarettes help move people away from traditional cigarettes but I suppose uh, the suspicion is that vaping has now carved out a whole new market for itself which is growing and that many vapors would never have smoked cigarettes in the past particularly younger users And and this is partly why taxation may be one method used now to try and limit access to vaping. So you spoke to people in the industry, you got the thoughts of vapours, but the Irish Heart Foundation has taken a strong stance on vaping. They have and they they see tax as a crucial measure to protect children's health and reduce the use of e-cigarettes. Now I spoke to their Director of Advocacy yesterday who's Chris Macy. This is some of what he had to say about what was announced in the budget. 
We've been advocating uh, for this for uh, for several years, Brian. There's been an explosion in the youth use of uh, e-cigarettes over the last few years that has been uh, fueled, I suppose, since the advent of disposable vapes. Adding taxes is is the most uh, effective way of of not just uh, discouraging young people from from smoking, but just stopping the start, if you like. We're way behind on everything to do with e-cigarettes in this country. We're one of the last. Uh, countries in Europe uh, where it's still legal to sell vapes to children while we have the legislation going through at the moment. You know, what we're talking about here in 2019, we had a situation where 37% of 15, 16 year olds were vaping, 18% were termed as current users. So they used, they'd vaped within the last uh, 30 days. We think that's exploded since because of uh, disposable vapes. We've got to stop this before it gets out of control. I know the argument being put across by the vaping industry initially was that vaping was less harmful, significantly less harmful, they would argue, than cigarettes, for example, and that this was a means for people to transition away from cigarettes. Uh, E-cigarettes are not as dangerous as cigarettes, but very, very little is. So the comparison is pretty irrelevant, really. Um, What we don't know about e-cigarettes is how dangerous they are because they haven't been around long enough to establish that. I think the most worrying thing is that the HRB research also found that teens um, who use uh, e-cigarettes are three to five times more likely to smoke tobacco than those uh, who don't. So there's a big focus there, Brian, on how many young people are vaping now and the harm that it could be causing. And this is one of the reasons why price may be a significant factor in terms of access amongst younger cohorts. So I was looking at some statistics around this. And in the last quarter of a century, Claire, we reduced youth smoking in Ireland among 15 to 16 year olds from 41 to 13 percent. So quite a significant reduction in cigarette smoking amongst young people. But it is starting to change and it's going up for the first time, essentially, in a generation. And some people will feel this is due to e-cigarettes, although the industry obviously would beg to differ. And on that front, you did speak to someone in the vaping industry here. What did he have to say about this proposed new tax? I spoke to Joe Dunn, who's director of Hale Vaping Ireland, and I have to say I was somewhat surprised when he told me he would actually welcome this new tax on the products he sells. I think the budget has looked at vaping now and has started looking at it, bringing in a bringing in a tax obviously at next year in relation to next year's budget. I think a tax can be helpful for the industry, and I say that in that it can clean up the industry a bit. We have a lot of illegal, illicit products still coming into Ireland from other jurisdictions which shouldn't be here. I think a like a tax regime can really stop that from happening because we, we do have a serious illegal tra- uh, trade coming in. And what happens with that is it brings products that are not re- regulated. We don't know what's in them. You know, the reason suggested is that, you know, we're going to try and bring in a tax to try and keep it away from the youth. The thing we have to remember about youth is the bill is still not in. The public health bill is still not here to legally ban it to under 18s, you know. So I think we're jumping to going here. Like we're, we're nearly jumping to stage two, even though stage one hasn't even happened yet. I think the bill needs to come in. It needs to be embedded into society. Ourselves, my company, Hale, as 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 one of the retail leaders when it comes to vaping, we 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 don't sell to under 18s. I can remember reporting on vaping when it was very new, and the argument being put across was that it was a less unhealthy choice, if you like, for people who might yeah. have smoked previously. Is that still the case? Do you think, Joe? Well, it is still the case because. Like I feel ourselves, the, the the industry, and even so, a, a lot of the NGOs, we all want the same thing. Like we all want people to stop smoking. Okay, we have different ideas or different ways that 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 we want that to happen. 
it's been spoken about nearly worse than, than than cigarettes. And it really is over the past while. And I'm not saying it's only media, just just in, 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 in medical circles, in media circles. Like the word tobacco and the word cigarettes has been taken out of the whole context. The biggest rival to tobacco ever in, in the history of of of, uh, of of cigarettes is vaping. Big tobacco are just laughing in the long grass thinking this is great. So a strong defence there of vaping products from Joe Dunn, director of Hale Vaping Ireland. So you went out and you spoke to some people who vape. I went to Cork City Centre yesterday. I have to say the first thing I saw was the sheer number of people and the number of vaping shops because I don't vape myself. I'd never really taken much notice of it. And then I think when you make a conscious effort to notice that the number of people vaping on the street is uh, really striking. So I spoke to several vapers I met in the city yesterday and this is some of what they had to say. I started smoking cigarettes and cigarettes you know were very expensive after a while and then I thought it would be a healthier option um, How's that going for you? Not well, <laughs> no um, it's far more addictive than the cigarettes it's easier than smoking cigarettes as well like it's just cheaper is kind of the main reason that I made the Do you feel it's healthier? Switch. No no I don't but it is just an addiction I suppose I'm just stuck with it now <laughs> I started smoking in like 2018, quit last year, but then I went on vaping just because I wouldn't be agitated for it during the day, but like on nights out now, especially when I'm drinking and stuff, I'd say a lot of lads now could say the same for that, like when you're out drinking. Do you think the tax, if there is an added tax on it or a tax on it, will that cause you to, to think twice? Yeah, me definitely, yeah. In my own opinion, yeah, I wouldn't. Hopefully by the end of the year, well, going into the new year now, hopefully I'll be off and for good. Like, I know it's harmful, even though I do it myself, like I know it is harmful, like even that's when I quit the cigarettes. I knew it was very harmful, like, and then I went on to vape and as an alternative, but, like, I know it's it's not good for you anyway. Like, I'd say to anyone, it's not good for you. I don't know. I was a heavy smoker for years, so the vape What's is... What's a heavy smoker? I could go through a 20-pack a day and the vape is the only thing to keep me off and keeping me off them, so even when it comes to them putting the tax on it, I'll still have to buy it. For me, I buy it weekly and it's... 28 euros. Do you think if, it, if there's a tax, is it going to cause you to think twice? For myself, probably not. I'm just off cigarettes just over here. A determined vapour in Cork City Centre there from Brian O'Connell's report on this morning's Today with Claire Byrne. Big Brother is back on TV for some reason and Ray Darcy thought it would be good to catch up with some Irish icons of reality TV. He spoke to Emma O'Driscoll who appeared on Pop Stars in 2001 and was a member of the band Six and by Mary Byrne who was on X Factor in 2010. Uh, Emma, just remind us about Pop Stars. I can't believe it's 22 years ago. I can't believe it's 22 years ago either but sometimes I look in the mirror then I remember very quickly. (laughs) (laughs) Um, Look, it was it was an amazing experience, but it's very different to the type of reality TV nowadays. Um, I think social media and things plays a huge role in that as well. Um, it was a totally different type of, of uh, reality TV. And I, we didn't really have anything else to go by at the time. It was kind of the first of its kind in Ireland. So mm. very, very different times. Uh, and was Simon Cowell involved? Yes, he was. So we had a record deal with... Um, with Simon at the time. It was just before American Idol and Pop Idol and all of that took off. So, uh, yeah. Who, who were the judges? So we had Louis Walsh, we had Linda Martin and Bill Hughes. So I remember at the time thinking, you know, I was just mad into music and singing and really had ambitions to try to do things. And like, look, it was a, a, almost a pipe dream to do it. Yeah. 
But when when I heard then that Louis was going to, because obviously, you know, Louis was holding auditions at times for bands and like this was the big thing when you'd hear that. And if you were anyway serious, you had to take the audition seriously. Mm. So when I heard that the that pop stars was coming to Ireland, I said like, you know, I was nervous thinking, going, will I do it? Will I put myself in for it? But then I thought, if I'm serious about this, then I have to do it. Yeah. You know, it was, there was, um, it was uh, a no-brainer, uh, really. Like Louis when he was at his height, was a star maker. Oh, like, but he was like, because he just had, he just had a bit of intuition in that area where he knew what was coming down the track, what would work. He was very good at putting people together. Um, and like, and that's one thing I will say with, with the guys in Six, if any of them are listening in, I'll say hi to the guys as well. Like, we're great friends to this day. Um, like, we made lifelong friends. Mm. And the, the six of us that he did put together, like, we have... To, to this day we're, we're very united and you know we chat all the time yeah. and so he did have an eye for that it may not have worked long term like we'd hoped but the experience was was incredible You were 19 Yeah From Cork still from Cork From Limerick Oh sorry from Limerick sorry <laughs> Sitting here in the Limerick studio Sorry 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 Where did I get Cork from? Probably uh, from Sinead Sinead was Cork Yeah right there you go yep. uh, And where was the audition? So the audition was on in Galway because I had this um, idea in my head when I heard there was four auditions. Was There was Galway, Cork, Dublin and Belfast. And I thought, OK, you know, things don't always go to plan. I mightn't get it right the first time. So I said, I'm going to Galway. It's on first. So I thought, at least I can go to every audition and give myself four uh-huh. shots at it. So that's why I actually went to Galway to the first one. So there was a Cork audition. That's, that's, that's where I got that wrong. Yes. And of course, Six had a number one hit. <laughs> you better be doing the dance now up in Dublin. <laughs> Is he doing it, Mary? Uh, yeah, we're doing it. Let's do it. True and true. You have to call it seven, Mary. We'll have oh. to add you in. I loved that song. I really loved that it. That was a hit, obviously, number one in Ireland, but it was also a hit in New Zealand. Yeah, so we we had a hit in New Zealand. We never got to go there, mind you. Uh, we got to do loads of the in the middle of the night interviews on radio. Um, but we'd, yeah, we did number one in New Zealand. So we had a few moments where you'd get somebody randomly, a friend of yours travelling, uh, doing the year travelling. And all of a sudden they'd be down in New Zealand and they'd be ringing you or making like little videos going, what's going on? Your song is on down here. I'm like, oh yeah, we, we had a number one down there. Great song. But we were in Iceland and version. Norway, yeah. Sweden and uh, I think it was South Africa as well. Yeah. So, yeah. Uh, I, I want to talk to you about how it changed your life but I want to bring Mary in now as they say in all the best current affairs yes, shows. Yes, darling, bring Mary in. <laughs> yes, yes. <laughs> <laughs> I was just looking at that. I think the, 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 the oldest person in the Big Brother house is 50. Yes. You, you were 50 when you did I X Factor. I was 50 when I started, when I did the X Factor. It's usually a young person's game, isn't it, reality well, TV? I actually thought that it was a young person. I just wanted to go in and see, could I do anything? I was not expecting what happened to me. And I mean, at 50 mm-hmm. years of age, from Ballyferma, walking on a till, it was a fairy tale and a dream come true. Yeah. You know, it was one of the best experiences I've had in my life. And and I'm looking at the Big Brother last night and the two women that are up for eviction are older women. Right. So it is a young person's game. Ageism. You know, ageism. Ageism. It is. It's ageism. ageism. Down with that sort of thing. Here's your Definitely. audition. <laughs> I have nothing. I I have no one. I boy you and want you so. I'll Come never, on, Mary! I'll never forget that. <laughs> I just wanted to go home. <laughs> we were there 
from 10 o'clock in the morning. That was at one o'clock. Mary. In the morning. You're, yeah. You're unreal. Like, it was just yeah. amazing. Thank you. Honest. Yeah. Like... Oh, stop. Honest God, it was unbelievable. Listen, we were there from 10 that morning. And I think that was about 20 past one when I actually got onto that stage. You better specify it was the next morning. It was the next morning. Yeah. And I really, all I wanted to do was go home and go to bed. It probably, <laughs> it probably helped you with your performance. Because the nerves stopped. Yes. It You're too tired stopped. to have nerves. I was too tired. Mm. I walked out. I said, how are you, Simon? Yeah. Big hello from all the girls in <laughs> Ireland. And then just get on with the song. And I sang it. And when they said, oh, well, he said, you're probably the best. And I went, <laughs> let's see what he said. Let's see what he said. It's amazing how you said you had the courage to come back and do it. I don't know whatever stopped you. What Low self-esteem. Nicole. Low self-esteem. Well, whatever we say, you know, don't let it affect you. I think that you, you brought something that's different. Thank you. Thank you very much. God. Uh, Mary, uh, I think it is quite important that what we say does affect you, because this is an audition. Um, and I think you have the best voice out of everyone who's auditioned. Go on, Mary! <laughs> you, you, you just don't know what that means to me, that's And actually, more than that, I really like you. Ah. Oh. He didn't mean that, the liar. And I mean, I'm getting, I've actually got goosebumps up and down my arm and every time no I wonder. see it yeah. and he says those words and that was all I went for. I was yeah. not expecting to go through to boot camp. I was not, especially mm. when I got to boot camp, it was brutal in boot mm. camp. How the heck they put me through the judges' houses. I was brutal in judges' houses. Like, I can remember that feeling like that, that, you know, I want, I just wanted to stand in front of Louis and Linda and Bill and sing and at least just get some feedback. Yes. But I, I didn't kind of think past that. So when it went on that bit further and got to the boot camp stage and all of that, like, I, I honestly didn't see it going as far as actually getting picked. Like, I, mm. you know, you'd imagine it and go, God, could you imagine? But I never thought it would happen. And, um, and Emma, can you go back to your 19 year old self? <laughs> Uh, and think about how you felt when you got through and you were part of six. Obviously, um, as a human being, you go, you, you project into the future. Um, what was in your head? You do, but like I didn't, again, as I said, like we didn't have a huge amount to compare it to apart uh-huh. from hearsay with pop stars had been um, on in the UK but apart from that there wasn't a huge amount that you could say okay this is kind of the trajectory of what you think mm. might happen mm. it was um, we we didn't know but of course you get excited because you know all of a sudden like there's you know the stories and the papers and you're like you know this is really picking up but like <laughs> if you imagine the first episode went out the same weekend that we had moved into the, the house and we had no idea of the hype that was going on outside. So all of a sudden then the episode starts going on air and we're all kind of watching each other's interview, sitting in the sitting room, cringing behind the cushions and all of that. And then all of a sudden, like you start seeing all these papers and, and hearing this. And like, then, of course, the big the, story, you know, Nadine yeah, Coyle. Like, but the, like the, controversy. the controversy around it. And yeah. it just became so intense and unbelievable. Like, I can honestly tell you, I never imagined in my wildest dreams the level it would go to. Yeah. Like it was it was incredible. And yes, obviously there was a lot of controversy and things around it. But like look, we've all we've all had a life um, a life experience from it that mm. it, never in a million years would I take it back. Emma O'Driscoll who appeared on Pop Stars in two thousand and one and Mary Byrne who was on X Factor in twenty ten talking reality TV with Ray Darcy this afternoon.
Author, influencer and recent first-time mother Jess Redden has just published a cookbook called The Food Pharmacy and she joined Oliver Callum this morning. It almost feels like a, a bit of an insult to say that you're an influencer because of all your qualifications and expertise. And um, it, it's it's one thing being a pharmacist, but to have a degree in psychology, is it, bef- before yeah, you go there? Yeah, I did there? psychology in UCD. Um, that okay. was a three-year course before pharmacy in RCSI. Just a casual three, three years. Uh, <laughs> Just the eight years in college. So how, how were you do, thinking of psychology? First of all, what was your, what was your, what was your psychology was at the time? Well, I wish I had like a really elaborate story, but it was because Criminal Minds was my favourite show at the time when I was 17. Really? So I wanted to be like a criminal psychologist and I put it as number one on my CAO. No thought whatsoever. <laughs> and then I got it. But it was a great foundation to go into any career. Like I feel like it's great to understand kind of human behaviour. Um, so it's a good platform good to do anything. Yeah, management should um, should start in psychology and then do do that, shouldn't they? Exactly. Uh, sorry, God, I should be touching there. Um, so you did psychology, so that's your undergrad and then you can swerve wherever direction yeah, you want. Yeah, so that? I kind of, well, no, you'd probably, anyone that did psychology might go on and do clinical psychology, educational, but I was working part-time in a pharmacy. Um, mm. So I got really fascinated by all the medicines and more so like just the admiration I had for the pharmacists and all the help that they provided. Um, so then that's the avenue I decided to go down. Okay, so you obviously have curiosities and you decide, though this is the thing I love now, I'm going to devote all my time to that. Yes. Right now. That, that's, that's just the type of person you are. Um, can you bring us a little bit, because in the direction of food, can you bring us into your family home growing up? Uh, where is home, first of all? And, and is food an important bit of the family theatre there? Yeah, well, I suppose, like, the inspiration for the book definitely would have come from my parents, my mum in particular. Yes. And uh, she's the one who taught me how to cook, how to bake. And our house was always filled with freshly baked treats. And I remember my friends would come over and every time she would put on such a big spread. Um, and she always did her Sunday roasts and we always had home cooked meals. So I guess I wanted to aspire to be like that when I became a mum. So I'm, I'm trying. <laughs> yeah. Well, it's only seven weeks in, yeah. you know. So you really, really and uh, where it's, it's Dublin. Is this yeah, Dublin yeah, Dundrum. Is Dundrum is home. Mm-hmm. Very good. And uh, because... I'm sort of in a home as well where food was always around the place and you kind of, some people don't have that, do they? I was Growing up, I was a grown-up adult before I realised, oh, not every house is like a, is I, I call it theatre because yeah. that's what it feels like, isn't it? Yeah. Everything that happens in the family home is around food. I the, think it's meals. so nice. Like so many of my memories stem from meals around the dinner table. But you're right, like a lot of people, I suppose, would eat ready-made meals or eat at different times. I think it's so nice to eat together as a family. I was so grateful and lucky and fortunate to, to have that. And you've always put value in the food because you're a fitness fanatic as well, just in your spare time. Yes, I do. I'm into the fitness. Um, I've always been a bit kind of, I suppose not sporty. I just like to move my body in certain ways. Um, so tying in food and fitness and there's a chapter on that as well. So like post-workout nutrition. Um, so I have a few different little recipes in there. Um, but yeah, I did a little course in personal training. <laughs> a little course. A little course. Um, so very you... good at talking all these things down. <laughs> this is not the influencer way. You're, but uh, yeah, a you're a qualified lot. personal trainer. Yeah, I taught a few classes when I was doing pharmacy. So that was like my part-time job on the side. <laughs> uh, people are really disliking you. <laughs> okay, so a degree in psychology, pharmacy graduate, qualified personal trainer. And you were actually working as a pharmacist, weren't you? Yeah. Up to... Up, I'm on my maternity leave now, um, so a couple more months and then I'll be back. Just a couple more months. Do you not take the, the the year the best part? I was going to, and then do you know what? I actually miss going into work. I think being serious? a mom is the hardest job 
in the world. That's um, I know I'm only seven weeks in, but I do miss just kind of going in. I'm not going to go full time, maybe two days, three days a week. Um, and I have a great relationship with my boss. So hopefully I'll go back maybe after six months. <laughs> don't, have, don't have that conversation on air. Take, <laughs> take your time. Uh, but it's an interesting, the food pharmacy is the name of the book and there you're on the front of it. Uh, but it's different from other cookbooks, isn't it? Can you talk, because the content uh, headings are all to do with your expertise as a pharmacist, I yeah, presume. Yeah, so I guess I wanted to make like a really handy resource that people could pick up just to kind of inform um, and empower people to take control of their health. So there's 10 different chapters all related to different health topics. So things like gut health, hormonal health, immune health. Um, so each chapter kind of starts with an introduction, a bit of information about each topic. And then you've got different recipes. So there's over 90 recipes in the book and yeah. they're all super simple. That's what I wanted as well. Something that you would have at home in your pantry and you don't have to go out and get a million different things. OK, so let's start with gut health, will we? Because that's the, what happens in there is going to affect everything that's going on in exactly. your life. Uh, but, but there's a kind of a... The reason you're coming here is because you had people coming into the pharmacy uh, with issues. Can you can you bring us through that? Yeah. And you realised the diet was going to uh, Yeah, I think, them. you know, a lot of people nowadays with such a fast pace of life, they just want to take a pill that's going to get rid of all of these issues. Yes. But underpinning every module that we did, it was always you have to address diet and lifestyle first rather than kind of, you know, putting a plaster on something. You need to actually sit down and think oh well what am I eating what am I fueling my body with and maybe if you're having a lot of processed food a lot of sugar that's creating inflammation and um, especially to do with the gut as well because our gut impacts our mood our sleep everything skin um, skin yeah exactly and mm. um, so you want to be kind of fueling your body with fiber lots of water as well I think we all are you know guilty of not having enough water throughout the day yeah um, so yeah diet would be really important and, and it has helped people who've come in expecting to be uh, kind of given pills. Yeah, I think when you, you ask them a little bit, you know, oh, tell me about a typical day on plate, what would you eat? And more often than not, people would say, oh, I just grab whatever is on the go or, yeah, you know, yeah. different bars in the shop. And then you say, oh, well, do you ever turn the bars around? And I always think it's really important to... to be able to read the ingredients and understand what they are. You know, sometimes you pick up these um, processed food bars and you haven't a clue what the ingredients that are gone into it. Mm. Um, so if you're kind of eating like that, you feel it physically. Um, whereas if you kind of bring it back to whole foods and putting a bit of thought into meal prep and planning, you can start to feel the benefits. Great. Um, uh, what I like about it is you're not telling people don't do the following, don't eat this, cut this thing entirely out of your diet. You're kind of encouraging them just to eat well and here are, here are the recipes. Yeah, it? exactly with some pharmacy uh, included in there. Yeah. Uh, talk to us about skin, uh, because that is the one that everyone... Because uh, eating and food, is it true what you eat can affect your skin? Yeah, big time. Again, so if you bring it back to like processed foods, high sugar and stress as well, I think mm. we can address diet, but you also have to address lifestyle. So if you're chronically stressed, it's going to show on your skin if you're tired. Um, so it's all connected. So I think with skin, like getting your omegas is really important. They're anti-inflammatory. Um, so even if you don't eat fish per se, like there's different sources. So chia seeds, walnuts. So I have all of that in the book, kind of tried to simplify it as much as possible. Um, but yeah, skin health um, would be one of my big interests as well. Uh, pregnancy and fertility, uh, th th there's a huge chapter on that. And yeah. obviously this is very relevant to the, the last year you've had. Yeah, I think I think I was pregnant when I was doing that one. Um, so it was really interesting to research. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> um, but I think, you know, I wanted to debunk a lot of myths out there as well. Um, so I put a lot of kind of research into 
what to eat to kind of fuel your body if you're trying to conceive and um, because there's probably a lot of misinformation out there as well um, and then I have like an anti-nausea smoothie so that was something that I had myself because um, it was one of the symptoms I had during pregnancy okay, What's in the anti-nausea uh, smoothie? It's kind of like avocados so, so different amigas and um, you've got almond milk in there as well a bit of spinach for iron and um, so kind of different things to address you know your, your needs during during pregnancy that's Jess Redden talking with Oliver Callan about her new cookbook, The Food Pharmacy, this morning. Gardener Marie Staunton and author Cathy Donaghy joined Claire Byrne this morning to talk about the autumn garden. And Marie stressed that this is the time people should be busy in their gardens. I always think autumn is the busy time because you're planning to get bulbs in for spring. You are trying your best to get the leaves up off the ground. You're trying to cut back stuff. You're dividing stuff. So it to me, this is the busiest time. And then you can actually hibernate with the animals <laughs> <Okay>. <laughs> later on. Um, but if you don't get it done now, what, what will happen is the ground will get too hard. You won't get the bulbs in and you won't want to go out. Mm-hmm. That, that's the way it happens, you know. So better to get it done. So it'd be a nice day tomorrow. I know the match is on. So you just have to just get out there for a couple of hours. And the match isn't on until the evening. So you so have all it's day. It's dark then. So you have all day to get out there and do stuff. So yeah. what do you want us to do tomorrow? Do you want us to pick up the leaves first? Yeah, is it? the leaves. Get the leaves off the ground first, and you can if if they're on the grass, just run the lawnmower over them, and um, you can pick them up that way. And you know, you use them, put them into a compost bay, or you can put them into bags, uh, pierce the bags, tie the bags up, and that's the best of stuff for your um, beds and borders next year. It takes about a year for them to break down. If you put a bit of grass clippings in, it'll heat it up a little bit and it'll break down even further. But you're going out to buy that stuff. You know, basically you're going out to buy uh, mulch um, when you could be just having it on site. It's on, there on site for you in the garden. Yeah, exactly. So once yeah. we have the leaves picked up, let's imagine we have more time now. Yes, that's only <laughs> an hour now, right? Yeah. You've just you can go in for a cup of tea and come back out again. So you've got that done. So it's a great time to divide plants. You know, uh, plants will give you an indication of when they need to be divided by the kind of splay outwards. So if it's an aster, for example, those lovely purpley daisy flowers at the moment, they kind of, they don't flower in the middle and they flower around the outside. Mm-hmm. And that's a general kind of your cue to divide them and all it is is you lift the plant out of the ground with a spade and you plunge the spade into it and break it in three or four bits and then plant them around the place and that's cheap and cheerful you don't yeah. have to go and buy it but just it's don't just kill it doing it no won't kill it. it oh no would it not Good see God, the problem no. is because the weather has been so good yeah. some things are flowering and we wouldn't expect them to exactly. flower so yeah. it's hard to go out and disturb those things when yeah. they look so nice but you have a you know you have a kind of a nice lead in so you have till the end of October really to be moving things around I mean I've been known to do it in November because you can get higher temperatures um, the dahlias are still flowering, so just deadhead them. You know, if you keep deadheading stuff, that's just taking the old flower heads off. New flowers will come, provided we don't get a frost. So if we get a frost, the 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 kind of foliage part of the plants will be killed off. Yeah, and they'll die back. And then you know, at that stage, then you can you can lift mm-hmm. and divide them. Um, and as long as the ground is nice and warm, um, they'll they'll knit in before winter. So they'll get a grip, and their little roots will come out, and they'll get a grip into the soil. But it's just a really good, cheap and cheerful way of of getting more plants into your garden that you like. Yeah, and it, you'll reap the benefit then uh, early yeah. earlyish next if you don't year. Don't like them, just give them away <laughs> for people. Yeah, yeah, that's that's another way to do it. <laughs> yeah. So Kathy, we we're talking there about gathering up um, the leaves, but you want us to maybe check under the leaves before we do that. 
Yeah, I think, you know, that's a good idea, Claire. I suppose, well, well, for me, I, I don't know that I would call my space, <laughs> space a garden. It's a kind of a, an untamed wild space. And yeah, I, I think at this time of year, you know, there's a chance for lots of little creatures to come into their own. So if you do have a little wood pile or some leaves, what you'll find is that these are really good food sources um, for the hedgehogs or for the little bugs that you might find, you know, find under these or the slugs. And what we'll find with slugs, not everybody likes them, but, you know, the foxes and the badgers love the slugs. These are a really nutritious food. Believe it or not, the, the, the badgers eat loads of worms and slugs. These make up around 80% of their diet. Really? So, um, yeah, I know. And they can eat several hundred slugs and worms a night. Um, now, being omnivorous, they'll eat, they'd eat anything from fruit and bulbs and mushrooms. And you'll kind of know if a, if, a, if a badger's been in your garden because they've got really big claws. So what you'll often find is that, you know, say some some mushrooms grow, um, you'll find that the badger will, will have dug those out and, and, and you mightn't see him at night because he is very shy. He's even shyer than the fox. But you'll definitely see marks that he's been around. So yeah. if you do have a pile of leaves and you see them disturbed and claw marks, you'll know that the badger has been in there at yeah. night, you know. You won't often see a badger, you're right. But I don't know about foxes being shy at all. I mean, you see foxes very regularly now, don't you? Yeah, you do. They're, you know, and, and the urban fox, I think, has come into his own, especially with, oh, with COVID. Oh, brazen. Yeah, yeah. I mean, I, I <laughs> yeah. see I see a, a few foxes. Now, the funny thing about foxes, they, they never show up when you want them to. But if you, I, I often find that, you know, at dusk, I, I might go into the, the little woodland behind our home. And if you sit really still for long enough, um, chances are a fox will wander out. And, and I just find that, you know, that encounter with this large wild creature who's as big as a dog, um, to, to come into your, you know, into your line of vision and walk past you. I find that kind of humbling and wonderful at the same time. They are there. They're all around us. None of us live too far from a fox, whether yeah. we're in the country or in the city. They are just the most amazing, beautiful creatures. Do you come across them often? Yeah, there's one that comes across our garden. It has a particular way, you know, across the garden, then goes to uh, through the ditch next door and follows off. But you can hear them. I, I, I'm, and maybe Cathy can tell me there's a cry that they give off. Oh, scary. Yeah really scary you're lying in bed going oh what you know what yeah, is that yeah. and especially around Halloween you know it can really yeah. be spooky yeah, yeah. do they go yeah, do, do they stay in the same um, home where they make their their? is it a set no Badger has a set I don't know what the fox's home is called do you the Cathy den. the den. den do they stay in the den or do they move off and come back from my experience, they, they move off. Um, yeah. We had um, the most incredible experience two springs ago in that we, we set a trail camera above a rock where there was a large hole underneath. And we, we left there for a few weeks. We didn't go near that space at all. And then we took the SD card and put it into the into the computer and we watched as the two old adult foxes came out of the hole, followed by not one, but four cubs. Aww. And it was just incredible to see them in their habitats. Now, that hole um, was not visited the next spring. Um, so I, I think that they tend to move around or have different entrances to the same hole. So I, I think that, you know, but you can you can really, you can usually spot the, the badger sets and the fox's hole because they're quite big and they're quite visible, you know, yeah. so with a little bit of, with a little bit of hunting. But I think the idea is maybe to look at it and then leave alone for a while, especially if you're going to set up something like a, a, a trail camera at night to see yeah, the that's nocturnal a, that's a good idea. On. Author Cathy Donaghy there. Cathy and gardener Marie Staunton were talking about autumn gardens on this morning's Today with Claire Byrne.
On this afternoon's Live Line, Katie Hannan spoke to Dermot, a recent widower, about his difficulties with accounts in his late wife's name. Can I just offer you our condolences first and foremost? You lost your wife just a few months ago. The 3rd of May. The 3rd of May. And you yep. had been together an extraordinary length of time. We were 48 years together. We were my man 44 by you. 48 years together. Uh, and and as good in the end as it was in the beginning, I, I believe. Yes, we were always in love and we were very happy together. And uh, she was asked about six months ago for one the lot. So I wanted to hear with someone who we having discussions from night and she said, I'm happy where I am. I'm going nowhere. <laughs> I'm going nowhere. She had everything she wanted with you, Dermot. She was happy enough where she was, yeah. Looking after her kids and looking after everyone else. <clears throat> Dermot, um, and I suppose people will know, people will recognise your voice there because you, you often speak on behalf of the ICSA, the, the Cattle and Sheep Association. Yes. Uh, um, but you're not, you're talking about something very personal to you today. Yeah, I was in, in Grange. I live in Grange the morning, run here around lunchtime. The Grange Research Farm, the Thomas Research Farm in, in Grange. If I was coming back to Portlaoise, I I never invited the twelve. I went to the car to my brother-in-law in Newbridge, and the sat that took me down the M50. What a disaster! But anyway, if I had, if I had, maybe I should have gone a different road. But that was okay. I came to the M50. I called to my friend in Portlaoise. And uh, she was making the dinner, we were sitting at the table, and I caught my phone, and I rang uh, E-Flo, mm-hmm. because when my, my wife passed away, until my wife passed away, I had no number for no account, or no account for no account. She was the, the brains of the, the, old, the outfit. She was the brains. <laughs> so, so she basically handled all the admin, the family life admin, as yes. we call it now. So she, she, could sign, she could sign my name and sign my son's name. She was, she was brilliant. <laughs> right. And... Uh, so, so you're, yeah. So you're after going through the, you're after going through the, the toll on the the M50. Yeah, and you I, need... the reason I rang them was that was it was it paid. I knew she had an account, but it, that account that was linked to me that had been working, I didn't know. Mm-hmm. And I rang to ask the question: Was the fee paid? And if it wasn't, could someone take the fee out, out on the line or on the phone or to my cat? Right. So a straightforward enough thing. Um, and yeah, did you explain to them? I felt simple enough. Okay. The first guy I met, he told me that he couldn't deal with me because I wasn't the account holder. And I explained to him, I gave him the number of the car, and I gave him my wife's mobile, and I gave him the landline. I, I'm more quickly answering me, but I explained to him that the car was always belonged to me. Mm-hmm. But the account, she had accounted her name because she was doing everything. Mm-hmm. And he got very upset. He said, look, I can't take money off you. You're not the account holder. I said, sure, don't take the money. Leave the account. Forget about the account. He said he couldn't do that when the phone told him and he, he, he dropped me off. So that was OK. And had you, sorry, had you, sorry, sorry, Dermot, had you explained to him that the account holder was was no I longer with us? This, yes, I told him the account holder was no longer around and my wife my wife was deceased. But that, and I, so I was having the cash. But when I said the cash was always belonged to me, he said it couldn't have been. Well, I said that's the way it was. So he said, look, I can't deal with you and not the account holder. And he turned me off. So I said, OK, maybe the phone did. I rang back again, and I got onto a lovely lady, but for some reason that forward did as well. So I rang back, and I got onto another chap, and I explained my story to him. Mm-hmm. And he said, I can't take money to answer all my questions. I said, let's go here. So he asked me, what day did my wife pass away? And I told him. And then he said, what day was she, she buried? And I said, excuse me. And I, my head was for a ride, and I said, oh, look, she died, she died on the third 
should have done for the Friday, um, probably the 6th or 7th or something there. And he came back to me and he said, I need the exact date and the time. And oh. I said, stop. Sorry, hang on a second. He, he, so, he, you, he has the date and he knows obviously she would have been buried a few days after that. And he wanted the exact date and time. Why? Correct. No, no one would believe me, but then I had my father law speak when I was having a cup of tea and Chris O'Kellan, transport management and postman was cleaning, cleaning was alongside me, he had it all. And he was amazed. And I said to the chap, with all due respects, I said, no, I was getting in the night. With all due respects, I said, my good man, just take the money out of my cab. I don't answer any more of your questions. And he said, look, you're getting, you're getting aggressively cutting me off. And I said, that's it. I ended up paying him no more. So I emailed them and told them that if I get about it, if they wanted to contact me, they, they could. Now, one of my daughters had it, and in the meantime, she rang that night, and she got on to a nice lady, and she, she paid it. But, I mean, it, it did upset me at the time, and it did pinch me, like, my, I buried my, my wife. But they be asked the time and the, the date, the day she was buried, I thought was awful. It's and there was no such thing as, I'm sorry for your loss or anything. I mean, look, I'm 70 years of age. I, I met a lot of queer people in my, in my lifetime, but I mean, I thought I was awful, actually, at the, at the time, you know, no. Yeah, yeah, and you know, I, I mean, Dermot, I think a lot of people will uh, sympathise with this situation because they will have been through this situation because a lot of people end up in the throes of the worst kind of grief, like yourself, having to, to sort out these kind of details, deal with accounts, get names changed, get accounts closed down, all that kind of thing. And you do hear again and again that there isn't always the best response from 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 the people you're dealing with. And I mean, it's just I, I can't imagine being told by somebody my wife died on the third of May and not having an uh, you know not having a an a sympathetic human response to that. Well, that's the biggest thing my friend said to me. He said like that was so callous. But like my daughter rang him up and she paid it. I didn't realise. I didn't know. I could have paid in a bloody shopping place, but I didn't know that. Yeah. But I was ringing to make sure that I wasn't paid. I didn't have to double pay it. Do you know what I mean? Because I didn't know whether the account was still linked to an account or not, because that my, my wife had, because I hadn't even a number for the account where my wages was going to. I was, always, I was a postman for 38 years, and I was a part-time farmer, or a full-time farmer, but a part-time job, but the way you like to, yeah. to put it, but... I had no number for no account. She was the boss of everything. You know what I mean? So you, this must be, this must, I mean, obviously you had a, a run in with, with, with this, these people, but so you must be doing this a lot then, are you having to sort out other, other details? Of- no, actually, well, I probably would, but I, I, I have a great family and um, my daughter went into the bank with me and sorted it all out because, um, and like I said, my daughter explained to the girl at the bank, this guy hadn't a clue, he had no number for nothing. No, no, but we had account details and account um, that me and I had kept it off. We had bank statements and stuff that sorted it out. Like, no, no, but um, I hadn't a clue. I actually hadn't a clue. We bought land and I, I could make money as fast as they'd walk when, when I had to, but she paid, she made repayments and she did all the admin. The poor girl and I hadn't a clue of anything. Like, you know, but my daughters, I mean, all started, they put me on Revolut and all these kind of things and then a coach on my phone, things I never, I never thought was possible. Dermot talking to Katie Hannan on this afternoon's Live Line about the mundane administrative difficulties he's encountered following the death of his wife last May.
Finally, on this edition of Playback Daily, an intriguing item on Today with Claire Byrne this morning. A doctor who forged a document from BlackRock Clinic in order to stay at an upmarket boutique hotel in Dublin for essential purposes during the pandemic has been found guilty of professional misconduct. Journalist Sean McCorrig spoke to Claire Byrne about the case. So you were following the proceedings yesterday. So what allegations were found to be proven by the Medical Council inquiry against this doctor, Milan Minich? Yes, well, I suppose this is one of the kind of less ordinary and more unusual cases to come before the the Medical Council, which is the professional regulatory body for medical doctors in Ireland. Uh, Usually the the cases involve, I suppose, problems with the care and treatment of patients. But this was, uh, as you said, about a letter that was forged uh, that purporting to come from the Blackrock Clinic where the doctor Milan Minich worked. And he had used this letter to make a reservation at the Mason Hotel. Um, it's a upmarket boutique hotel in the Dublin Docklands. And the, the allegations related to his use uh, for, to forging the letter and then using it to make a reservation at the hotel back in April 2021. OK, so... And at, at, at the time, I suppose I should say, at the time... Hotels were only open to guests who were deemed essential workers and anyone looking to stay in hotels had to provide a letter from their employer to state that. Okay, so then the the Medical Council, what uh, explanation did the Medical Council give for the ruling in this case? Well, the Council's uh, Fitness to Practice Committee and its chair, Chairman, Professor Joseph McManaman, said um, it was abundantly clear from evidence that was heard um, from a hearing back in September from a, a number of witnesses from both the hotel and the Blackrock Clinic that uh, Dr Min- Minich was the author of the falsified letter and that he would have known its contents when he was submitting it to the hotel were untrue um, for, for getting the accommodation at the Mason. Because at the time, the Blackrock Clinic was used hotels for staff but there were two other hotels Yes, um, at, at the time they, we, we heard from um, HR um, executives uh, at the Blackrock Clinic that there, there was the need for um, temporary accommodation for key staff, and they, but they were using the Talbot and what was what they called the Burlington. I think I think it's the Clayton Hotel these days. But I, I suppose how how um, Dr. Minich got rumbled was that the um, hotel receptionist at the Mason, Tom Carl, said he they used to go to a verification process for guests who were booking into the hotel and he was a little bit surprised to get the um, booking from Dr Minich because Dr Minich had um, submitted his own, he had his own accommodation and gave an address in Dublin too and I suppose for anyone who might be aware of the specific geography of, of the hotel um, it's the Mason Hotel is uh, located on the North Wall Quay on the on the north side of the, of the River Liffey where um, Dr Minich his own um, re- residence at the time was in Dublin too which would be on the south side of the Liffey which for pretty much every area in Dublin too I suspect would have been closer to the Black Rock Clinic rather than the hotel where he was seeking to stay. Mm -hmm. And the Black Rock Clinic then, what evidence was heard from them on, on all of this? Well, they, they were contacted by the hotel just seeking to verify that they, they had submitted the letter on behalf of Dr Minich and a HR executive, Claire Poole, um, whose signature was seemed to be on the head of no paper from the Blackrock Clinic, said she she had not authored such a letter, although the, the signature did appear to to look like his. Um, I, I suppose you should say as well that we also heard that Dr Minich had twice before this um falsified letter, he'd actually asked the Black Rock Clinic 
um, for a letter to stay at a hotel in the in the previous seven months and that he'd been refused because he wasn't deemed an essential work worker at the time. Um, I suppose we, we we heard also from the, the hotel witness that the, the, the Dr Minich had sought a warehouse cosy room for two nights in the hotel on what he and he looked for the highest floor available. I, I happened to look at the website of the hotel and I, and I suppose if, if, if you saw the panoramic views of the city and looking over the Docklands, you, you might understand why he, why he would have made such a request. Was Dr Minich at this hearing? He he attended a hearing back in April, a remote hearing of the, the fitness to practice inquiry back in April, at which time he, he was based in Canada and there was both time difference and Wi-Fi problems and it was adjourned a number of times. Um, but after July, he didn't engage anymore with the process and then the full hearing went ahead in September in his absence. And the sanctions that he will face, will we find out about those? We will eventually. The the Fitness Practice Committee will um, make its recommendation and sanction and that can range from anything as minor as a a censor and admonishment, which is effectively a rap on the knuckles right up to suspension. Um, The Fitness to Practice Committee will not make its recommendations known, but they will send it forward to the full Medical Council. And, the, and any sanction imposed by the Medical Council has to be formally ratified by the High Court. And it's at that stage that we would become aware of any sanction. That's journalist Sean McCorhig talking to Claire Byrne this morning about a doctor found guilty of professional misconduct during the pandemic. And that's all I have for you on this edition of Playback Daily. The programme was compiled, written and edited by me, Neil O'Sheridan. Don't forget you can listen back to all the programmes featured on Playback Daily on the RTE Radio app. I'll be back with another Playback Daily on Monday. Until then, thank you for listening and good luck.